Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Denise Schroeder. I was immediately captivated by her personal journey and became instantly invested as she continued to share the highs and lows of her life experience with unparalleled authenticity. Denise is a vivacious entrepreneur who, despite naysayers, has built an incredibly successful real estate business in Oklahoma with her husband, Troy. Denise recently released her new book, Out of the Box, my response to everyone who said I could never sell real estate. And in addition to her professional accomplishments related to real estate, Denise has shared her story of resilience and success on multiple national television shows, including and most notably, Oprah, Steve Harvey, Rachel Ray, and The Talk. Denise's ability and willingness to share her most intimate moments with transparency and unapologetic vulnerability hits home in a way I can't even begin to explain. So let's get the conversation started and you can find out for yourself. Welcome to the show, Denise. Let's get started. I'm so excited. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. This is one of the most excited moments I've had being able to share a conversation with a guest because when we initially spoke, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I think we were both kind of coming into the conversation feeling a little like, what is the intersection of our lives and how does it all sort of round out into an episode? And when we came off that call, I just felt so connected to you and your story. And I think we both felt maybe a little bit surprised that we had as much in common as we do when it comes to our life experience, but also, and I think really perhaps more importantly than the things that we've experienced, the outcome of those experiences and our desire to heal in a way that not only helps us, but helps other people. I absolutely agree. And there were so many similarities in our experiences and maybe even a little bit of trauma bonding, but that's okay. Those vulnerabilities connect us where we can really touch each other's souls and make an impact and an imprint and a difference on other people's lives. And that's kind of where I am in the space I am today is not proving myself, but being very purpose-driven. Absolutely. And I think showing up fully is something that, you know, immediately comes across in the interactions that we've had, um, albeit just a few at this point. I thought an interesting way to start the conversation might be to speak a little bit about where you are now and kind of reverse engineer how you got there. So as I mentioned, you and Troy have a successful real estate business, the Schroeder Group in Oklahoma. And You've obviously been able to create a brand for yourself that has proliferated quite a bit. But do you recall a specific moment that you first felt that finding your place in real estate was a core component of how you would actually fulfill your purpose? I think that real estate for me was home. I just knew that I was called to do it. And 20 years ago, when I was told I couldn't do it, once I arrived at in actuality, getting my license, I found that selling homes is a byproduct of what I do. I get to use creativity, marketing, my love for serving people. So I get to use all of those like gifts and talents. 
um, balled up into real estate. Being a keen negotiator is, is a big thing for me. I'm also a family law mediator. So I love to negotiate. And, you know, we're top 1% in our metro area. We've sold 650 homes in 10 years. And the average agent, I think, sells four to eight is the national statistic. So I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I wouldn't have been able to accomplish the things that I have today. We started this 10 years ago. We just celebrated our 10-year workiversary together. And we should get a medal, I have to say, for working together as a couple, lovers working together and making things successful personally and professionally, because it's an art. Absolutely. And I feel like that's something that particularly resonated with me when we did first speak, because having met my now partner, Nicole, and seeing what she's done as an entrepreneur for herself really gave me the freedom to find my path and carve out that part of my life that I really wanted to um, build that entrepreneurial vision for myself. And then I hadn't really had the support to do that yet. So I totally understand how having a partner who's not only supportive, but also involved and emotionally and actually invested in the work that you're doing together. It just makes such a difference as we're starting to create a brand and a following. It's becoming more and more apparent how lucky we are to not only Mm -hmm. care for each other the way that we do, but to be able to build that into something beyond even just the relationship as, as romantic partners and life partners, but to be able to cultivate a working relationship that expands on that and makes it really fun is just so unique. Yeah. I I agree. I think that for us, he and I have different gifts and talents and different strengths and weaknesses. And for us, it's just perfect because the things I don't enjoy and I'm not good at, he thrives and he receives energy from, which is kind of rare. Sometimes you have a battlefield, you know, you're fighting over, well, I want to do that. No, I get to do that. And also I never had anyone that believed in me so much that gave me the freedom to fly because I'm very eclectic. I'm very creative. I'm very free spirited when it comes to just how I want to do things. And I've never had, you know, a wind beneath my wing type of partner. I've always had someone that wanted to clip my wings because they were scared I would leave the nest. I really love that analogy. So thank you for using that because it's true. It really changes your perspective on not only what you're capable of, but how somebody else's support in that endeavor or many endeavors really just elevates Mm -hmm. your potential beyond what you even saw possible for yourself. Absolutely. When I started seeing myself through his eyes, it was it was indescribable. I just got goosebumps the way you (laughs) phrased that because it's true. It's like it took my self-perception away from this insecure, historically kind of desperate Mm -hmm. in relationship. You kind of have dysmorphia sometimes when you're looking at yourself. And then when you see someone that just purely loves you for you and absolutely has joy when they see you light up like a Christmas tree when you're using those gifts and talents and executing those when you've been held back and kind of in bondage and just not having the confidence. And so I didn't even realize what that meant. Like he's more of a supporting role. We do a lot of TV stuff and he is along for the ride, but there's a lot of puffiness chest behind the scenes because doing major TV stuff is not his calling. It's not his, 
gifting, but he knows how much I love it. And we are a team. Sometimes I go solo, but most of the time we're doing it together. And so I build him up and I help give him confidence because it's not his strength. Now, has he gotten used to cameras? Absolutely. He's gotten used to people being in his dance space. And now he's the comedy of the shows because he's comfortable with the cameras, but it was a process. So having somebody that sometimes goes along with you, like, even if it's a Netflix, you know, I'm watching this. I don't really want to watch this, but because I love you, I'm here, I'm doing it like that sort of thing. That's the way he's been with me with TV. And that has been a huge element in our growth. I appreciate you sharing that too. It offers a very helpful perspective in terms of where we are also in the early stages of building um, business together because we've sat down and tried to do some podcasts together and Nicole's like, I can have these conversations with you, but as soon as you put a mic in front of me, I'm like, I don't have anything to say. I'm like, no, you have so much to say. Just pretend it's not here. And she's like, no, that's your thing. And I'm like, it can be our thing. And to your point, it's like trying to find a way to make your partner comfortable in a scenario where you sort of just vibe, right? It's like, this is where I am. I'm in my element. I do nothing more than talk. Just sit down with me. Let's have a conversation. It just takes time. I would just encourage her to just keep doing it. I mean, we've done so much TV now. Our first HGTV episode we did, the director was really out there and eclectic. And, you know, he said to Troy, look, I don't want to film for 12 hours today you have a beer. I don't care if it's 7am when we start shooting, you have to loosen up, dude. And then he would always say energy, energy, you know, and it would annoy Troy, but he started getting it and he started loosening up and he he wasn't hammered or anything like that, but just something to like, take his nerves down, take the edge off, take the edge off. And then he really got in his element, but it took time. And I had to be patient with him because his desires and his giftings are different than mine. Totally. He was coming along the journey with me. So I I had to be thankful and grateful and patient. Yes. And I appreciate this as a life lesson because it really goes to show just sort of your energy and the way that you speak about this too is how open-minded and empathetic you are and the way that you've translated your life experience into not only this really positive relationship and business, but also in projecting that and sharing that outward because you have had a lot of airtime, which is amazing. And I feel very humbled to be able to have you as a guest knowing what you've been able to achieve in the professional realm. But I think more than anything, when we last spoke, it was such an immediate awareness of your depth and your humanity that comes across so instantaneously because you have not had a very straightforward cut and dry life. You've gone through highs and lows, as I mentioned earlier, and that tumult when you're living from a place of insecurity or low self-esteem, I think it's really easy to get kind of buried in that. And when you're with people who not only manipulate the situation, but also, as you said, clip your wings, keep you down, there's a lot that you don't even really understand that you need to heal from to be able to get to where you are today. And so you and Troy have been doing your business together for 10 years, but that stemmed from a decision for both of you. You quit your jobs the same day, right? And then decided this is what you were going to do. So can you share a little bit more about that and how that sort of unfolded to, to create 
the space that you both are working within now and how you navigated your decision to basically go all in on it. We went and we heard some motivational speaker, which sounds so cheesy and cliche. And they were like talking about, you know, just taking leaps of faith and stepping out. And what do we do? We go home. We're like, we're quitting our jobs. We're so euphoric about this. You know, we're on a high and we didn't do real estate to start with. Troy had always wanted to do financial services and okay. Numbers and data, not my thing, you know, creative arts. Those are where I, you know, thrive and I get wonderful energy from not numbers. I dealt with, um, a death in my family that was really close to me. And I was going into people's homes and talking to them about life insurance and financial services. That was terrible to me. And we had gotten into this particular company from a childhood friend of Troy's that told us he was thriving. Everything was amazing. Well, we found out about two months after we quit our jobs with seven mouths to feed and $30,000 in the bank that he was going bankrupt. So he lied to us about everything, knowing that we had all of this responsibility. And I was extremely angry and crushed. It was a really difficult time. We were afraid to tell our family who were most of our family and friends and our environment, you know, as a whole was like, why are you quitting your jobs with benefits? You're neglectful. That, that sounds idiotic. It sounds like you guys are just, you're mental. And I thought, well, maybe we are, but we're here together, arm in arm. We're going to take the leap of faith. So we in Oklahoma, it's tornadoes and wind. Um, so we were selling roofs. I know that sounds bizarre, but a lot of people can relate if you live oh, I believe in areas. It. So I was going 110 degree heat. I can remember walking down the sidewalk in high heels, walking up door to door, going up and asking people after a hailstorm, can we assess your roof? Because we were like the salespeople that got the roof contract signed. But initially we were like taking a look at the roof. Can you imagine me looking at a roof and I'm wearing high heels? I'm dehydrated because I don't drink enough water. I'm about to pass out. And I told Troy, I said, I'm calling my dad to come get me. He lived three hours away. He said, oh, good luck with that. So what I'm saying is we did things that, I mean, I felt like a glorified Kirby vacuum salesman. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Do you mind if I interject real quick? Because I think that's an important point. I feel like a question that comes up for me in that is, was the hard part in doing that, aside from the fact that it's just arduous, and honestly, it's probably very difficult to have those conversations with people after they've dealt with damage and you're going through your own life experiences. But I'm the type of person where I can't do a hard sell like that. It's not who I am. No. Did it feel inauthentic to you? Like, was that part of it the did. challenge that you faced? It absolutely did. I'm not, I'm just not salesy like that. I'm not a vulture. Like I hate going to car lots. You feel mm-hmm. like everyone's attacking you. And so this was so out of my comfort zone, out of my element, but yet we didn't want to go get a J-O-B. So we were just doing whatever we could. We didn't tell our kids, didn't tell our family that we were out here trying to sell roast for this construction company. And they weren't paying us our commissions when we were getting them contracts. So it was like, oh my God, do you remember when gold was really high? Yeah, it was really high. And there was cash for golds on every corner. Mm -hmm. Well, a friend of mine had a gold party and it's where you bring your outdated gold jewelry. So I went to this party. I made 400 bucks off like a few items, Mm -hmm. very minimal items. And the lady said, 
you should do this. You are great with people. So I started having these parties. I decided, where do you see women in droves that have lots of jewelry? Well, that's salons. I got hooked up with this company and I would buy $10,000 in gold and silver in an afternoon at a salon. It was like mind boggling. We're making, you know, at the time we're making about 50 grand a month, which was a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of money. And so I wanted a raise because I was number three out of 200 salespeople in the nation and they wouldn't give me a raise. And I was coming up with all these marketing innovative ideas that I was sharing with the whole company and all the reps. And so we, um, we ended up starting our own company and doing fundraisers for schools and churches and doing the salon thing. And when that went down, Troy looked at me and he said, it's time to do real estate, Denise. Do you agree? And it was like, angels were singing. It was like, ah, I had this seed that was so deep within my soul and I could just feel it start to bloom, you know, that I was so ready. But I did tell him, I said, I'm going to put immense pressure on us because I waited two decades to do this. And I know this is what I was supposed to do, even though I needed permission at the time to do it. Something that's really important to note about what you just said earlier, too, is that you're not really a salesperson. You're not a vulture. You're not going to just kind of like circle and, and find what you can. But you were number three out of 200 salespeople. And that's because you're innovative, because you're creative, because you connect with people. And I think that's something that can't be understated because at the end of the day, you can make sales. That's not the question. It's how do you want to do it and what do you want to sell? And I guess that's maybe a question for you. Like, do you consider it really sales when you think about it or do you think of it in a different way? Yeah, it's about serving people at the end of the day. I came from a place in my life where I was insecure from a young age. You know, my, my biological father, and I call him that because that's all he is. He was a sperm donor. He threw something at my mom, a beer bottle that was virtually full, split my skull open, meaning to hit her. It was not trying to hit me, but I had an emergency craniotomy. I have headaches and migraines to this day as a reminder of um, this situation. My mom left him, thankfully. And, you know, one of the few times I visited him, he put me in the back of a van with my half brothers and we, he lived in Phoenix, drove me across the Tijuana, you know, the Mexican border and did a, we are the Millers type drug run because he was one of the biggest pot dealers in Phoenix at the time. And so I was dealing with some of my only interactions with my father as being extremely negative. He also tried to set me up at 16 with a 32 year old, one of his friends. So I was in a very dysfunctional relationship when I tried to be in contact with my father. I mean, that is not normal behavior for a father. And so I don't have relationship with him anymore. And my mom remarried an amazing guy who has raised me and adopted me and, you know, unclipped those wings. He's taught me that I don't have to have abandonment issues, which unfortunately those seeds of abandonment and wondering why, you know, a natural parent can't love you and doesn't protect you. And those things never go away. They, they're, you carry them. They're embedded, right? I mean, so much of what happens, especially at those young ages, it's like zero through six. I've probably said this on a few episodes, but those are the most formative years. And those are the years that personalities are formed. Right. And we have the least amount of 
awareness other than you know your body's retaining it but you don't understand in any way that is tangible to you at that age so it's not until you are old enough to understand and assuming you're doing the work because you realize how it's affecting you that you can start to unpack that but to to sort of go back and see that experience and those experiences for what they are and be able to speak about it in a way where you are able to look at your adoptive father who really raised you, who cared for he you. He is my father. Or your father, who, mm-hmm. for, forgive me. No, no, I'm just that. saying, but, I look at him. He is my father, my biological sperm donor. He wasn't meant, he wasn't meant to be a parent, much yeah. less a father. You yeah. Know? And I think it's amazing that you had somebody who was able to be in your life, who showed up for you in the mm-hmm. ways that you needed and to be able to help deconstruct some of that that trauma from being a child and help give you it sounds like a sense of that worthiness a sense of belonging too i love that yeah Mm -hmm. that may be why my picker was broken to be honest i mean really you know they say you marry your father i did get married really young and i don't regret the two children that i have obviously they're beautiful But I got into a relationship where when I said I wanted to get my real estate license, I was met with, well, you can't do that. You can never make it. Why in in the hell would we line the garage walls with superficial, you know, pictures of your name on them with no yard to stake? Like it would be an expensive hobby and it would be to just be silly. And, you know, everyone in my tribe at the time, well, why would you do that? So it, it wasn't just one person. It was a collective tribe around me. Everyone around me told me I couldn't do it. You know, my parents didn't tell me that, but everyone locally that I was interacting with my friends, um, you know, my family that I had locally, they were saying I couldn't do it. So what do you do? You bury the dream because when you're in a situation that's toxic and every decision, every thought, every idea stems from you're trying to create like peace in your environment. That that's mm-hmm. that's all I was trying to do was just keep peace. I didn't want to ruffle feathers. And you know, you come to a point where you realize you've lost yourself. You're broken and spilled out on the floor. I didn't even know who I was. I didn't recognize myself. I didn't like myself. Like who am I? I'm afraid to even cry. I have so, to cry in a bathroom. So, can I ask you a question about that sort of realization about losing yourself. You said you'd gotten married very young. So Mm -hmm. was that something that that feeling started to evolve and maybe not you a bit over time? Or was that sort of a moment where there was this catalyst to just that really intense realization? Because my own experience is that it was sort of a slow drip that felt Mm -hmm. like all the time it was wrong, but I just couldn't pinpoint the wrong. Yeah, I think I knew, I think there were signs that we weren't meant to be together. So it was a slow drip. And then you have, you know, situations happen. My mom was misdiagnosed with a hernia and she had an exploratory surgery when we figured something is really wrong. And a surgeon was in a a rush to get to a college football game and left perforations all throughout her colon. And she was my age, 49, when she got diagnosed and she passed shortly after she was 50. I was dealing with that at the same time as I was dealing with um, diabolically donating my eggs because I'd seen an ad on a reproductive commercial that you can get $1,500. At the time in 1999, $1,500 was a lot of money. It was 
a retainer fee for me to just have a nest egg to maybe move forward, knowing that I was not in a place I needed to be. It wasn't functional. It was toxic. It wasn't healthy for myself, for my kids, for my husband. I needed an exit plan. And I didn't want to admit I was ashamed to tell my family, my friends, like I messed up. I'm a failure. That's what I felt like. I think that that's one of the hardest things to overcome when you're making the decision to leave a toxic or abusive relationship. I mean, did you feel paralyzed? I felt like a slave to fear. The slave to the fear is a really good statement for me because during the variety of events that kept happening, I just kept justifying the gaslighting because I couldn't get my ex to talk about it with me. It was like every time I would try to make a point about like, where's this money going? Or how did you end up in this situation? What's happening? Because I don't want to be somebody who victim blames or shames. And I'm going to choose to trust you. But at the same time, I now have, I don't know, like a lot of video footage of you taking my car because you've already totaled three of them. So now I have a dash cam. Oh my God. And then on this dash cam, the fourth time you almost totaled my car, I can't see her because it's facing forward, but I can see what's happening, that she's gone. Oh my gosh. She's telling me she's working. Is she aware of the dash cam? Oh yeah, because she tells the homeless man that she's picked up in my car to go get drugs when he asks oh if God. that's a dash cam and does it record. And she says yes. And it's like, I see this footage because I'm like, <laughs> how did the accident happen? This doesn't make sense. What you're saying doesn't make sense. And at the time we only had one car. So I just take a lift to go get her. It's dark, whatever. And I'm like, what you're saying doesn't make sense. The way the car looks doesn't make sense. So I watched the dash cam footage. I'm not expecting to see what I just described. And so I'm also hearing her lie to the insurance company. I'm oh literally just, I'm watching this. And then I tell her that I'm watching this and she denies all of it, telling me that this is part of the dissociation that she's been experiencing, that she's been attempting to deal with because of all this other previous trauma. Now that said, I do believe at some point in her life there was some severe trauma, however much that was or where that line gets drawn between like the truth and the lies, I don't know. That part frustrates me, but at the same point in time, it was like, at that point, it should have been enough, Denise. It should have been like, yeah. very clearly, you fucking know, okay? Yeah, this is a red flag times a million. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gave the analogy the other day that I was like, it's sort of, you know, when you watch dogs do agility training and they're darting through all those red flags, it's like, that was the way I was living my life. Yeah. And, I was, and you feel like it's almost someone else's life. You're like, is this really my freaking life? A hundred percent. And this is the moment where I, the my moment where it was like, I'm coming out of this, this is it, I'm done was me going, this isn't my life. This is not right. who I am. This is not the life that I'm going to live. And this is not the life I choose to live. You feel like you're being sentenced to a life. Yes. And it's 100%. a choice. And and to your point, like my mom passed away as I was going through this really heinous divorce. And then when I gotten home from losing my mom, she violently assaulted me and then denied it and had our couples therapist tell the oh police that I was the abusive one. And I was like, if I didn't already have the conviction that I had, it was like, you made it real, real easy to walk away without feeling like, well, what if, right? Because all right. those years were the what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. No, at this point, 
There's nothing else to say. It's over. You've made it very clear that it's over. We're done here now. Now you're just in survival mode to make sure you can get out and you can support mm -hmm. yourself both emotionally, financially, et cetera. And I know we both went through extremely expensive, aggressive divorces. And that part amidst losing a parent is like the most emotional turmoil I've ever been in in my entire life. Do you feel the same way? There's always healing to come. There's always growth to come. There's no arrival. You know, it's been 20 years since my mom's been gone and I still can get triggers just from missing her more immensely than, than other moments. But yeah. I think you, you get to a point like you were with your ex that, you know, I just began to see red, like I felt numb and mm -hmm. paralyzed and I started feeling anger at myself. Like, why am I allowing myself to subscribe to this shit? Yeah. Like if I don't rescue myself, no one else is going to. So I had to take the steps and donating my eggs was part of it. Then I got intense therapy two times a week and, you know, told my counselor I'm too broke to be fixed, but have at it because I'm going to be your poster child. And, you know, it was a beautiful thing because we reprogrammed, we rewired. I truly rediscovered who I was and did an autopsy on who is in my life, who is influencing my life because it played such a role in this outside noise and chatter around me in the belief system in myself. And I was starting from scratch. And so that meant I always thought people were, you know, plucked out of my life were or taken, but really I just had new people transplanted in my life for that season that needed to be there. And the people that I felt like were taken from me, it was for a reason. It's interesting. My best friend back in Pennsylvania had has gone through her fair share of relatable experiences in that regard. And something she said early on in our friendship was that, you know, when we meet people, they're there for a reason, a season or a mm -hmm. lifetime. And what you just said really just sort of embodies that sentiment and that fact that at any given point, we can choose who is or is not part of our life. And unfortunately, sometimes- love people from afar. Yes, exactly. Or you can decide that you don't need those people in your mm -hmm. life. And and I, when I consider the loss of my mom, and I'm sure similar for you, but I realized probably like a month ago, I really like kind of had this moment of clarity where I asked myself, is there anything I miss about my ex? We were together for, mm -hmm. let's say 10, 11 years before I had like decidedly gotten out of it, but 12 at the end of the day. And then married for five, almost six. That's a long time. I was in my early 20s when we met. She was in her early 30s. So this was a big chunk of my life where the self-discovery could have been happening, but it was stifled. And mm -hmm. um, it gave me this sense of awareness about how, like, I don't miss anything. And and that's terrible that I was in a relationship for so but what long. did you learn from it? Well, so exa much. exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes, exactly. It was such a, a moment for me to be able to look at it objectively and ask myself that question. And when I think about these moments that I would have sitting in my house worrying about her because there was constantly like, what's going to happen? Is she going to be missing? What's going on? It was like, I would think about if her chair was empty mm -hmm. and it made me sad in the sense of, or not even sad, it made me fearful of what that would feel like. But there was not anything to miss because there was no substance to our relationship. That's huge. 
what what you realized because I, I mean I feel the same way I feel like that for me God has used my failures and mistakes and trials and train wreck situations for me to be um, a beacon of hope and a lighthouse to others it's not a hindrance it doesn't make me damaged or too broken to help other people it actually gives me credibility because that's how we connect to other people if we are open and vulnerable to sharing that grit. And like I said before, the really darkest places of our experiences in our hearts, we can help other people, you know, inject hope that they can make it through. They can get out of that relationship. They can move forward. They can take the leap. They can start the business. They can reinvent themselves but we just need other people sometimes to pull us up or just to take us arm in arm or be on the other side of the tunnel, you know, in the light where even though they're in the complete darkness, they can hear our voice, even Mm -hmm. though it might be small and more quiet, but they can hear us. Mm -hmm. it, It brings them to the other side. And I think that that's such a beautiful thing. And, you know, my sister has had a lot more difficult time, I guess, in her grieving process. It's been um, longer for her to process through things. She was 21 and I was 29. And so she was very young. And, you know, we all grieve at, at different places in our life. But I always tell her, I had to make a choice. I felt like I walked around with an elephant on my back for a lot of the relationship I was in, and especially trying to figure out how to grieve my mom, how to deal with this broken, disastrous relationship that I was mourning because I had children and I didn't want to break my family apart. All these things, but I had to make a choice. Do I choose to have a greater life that I know I'm meant to have and to have joy? Or do I choose to have a chip on my shoulder and to be angry and resentful? I do not choose that life because I'm giving power that I'm not giving away. I'm taking my power back. And so I don't have a chip for my biological father. I don't have a chip for anyone I've ever been in a relationship with because there's been so many lessons in it that when I was going through it, I remember thinking, what have I done? Mm -hmm. God, what have I done to deserve this? When really now I'm like, God, there's treasure in trauma because I'm thankful for it. Because it built a warrior in me. It's great to hear you say that, Denise, for a couple of reasons. One, I think it's super important to acknowledge that you recognized that you didn't want to perpetuate this victim mentality, which I think is really important when you've gone through a lot of trauma. Because my ex very much leaned into that um, and used it as a mechanism by which to manipulate me. I was very keenly aware that was something I didn't want to do. So it made me very transparent about my own experiences going into my next relationship, which was super on the heels of all of that. And I was not looking for it. So it very much happened in a way where it was like, I know that for me to be able to be the best version of myself, and I'd been doing the work for a while, I'd been doing the twice a week therapy and going in and being like, I am doing it, I am not paying for this and not getting some sort of result out of it. Like I am not giving my time to this if I'm not coming out feeling like I've achieved something for myself. And so having the ability to step away from those situations, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've had the resentment, there are still moments where it happens, but. I I agree with you wholeheartedly that you have to make the choice for yourself that every day, 
Exactly. And what you want and what you feel is right for you is still possible regardless of anything that's happened in the past. And I think that if we are truly honest about why we hold on to some of those things um, or are unsuccessful maybe in getting over some of these humps either as quickly as we'd like or overall as human beings, it's because there's some sense of familiarity in those wounds and it's easy to slip into this sense of what that was like or feel that shame or guilt about staying for so long. But Mm -hmm. to kind of bring it to the beginning of our conversation, having a partner who also helps ground me in who I am now and what they see in me gives me a greater sense of self and security to be able to look at those situations, to your point, acknowledge what I've learned from them, and at the same point in time, be really proud of myself for leaving the situation, regardless of how long it took, regardless of how I got there, because at the end of the day, I'm not there anymore. And it doesn't matter whose fault it is. There's two sides. We we all contribute to yep, exactly. mistakes and you know successes. So when I was like starting to do the work with therapy, I can remember telling Kathy was her name. I said, I am determined. I don't want to let the unhealed parts of me break other people because I, I needed to be the best version of myself. I had two kids that were depending on me. I was like the rock of our family. You know, everyone always looks to me. I'm the counselor. I'm, you know, the wise one. Did you ever feel like if you don't put the work in, then you would maybe in essence, pick a broken person because you're broke. And then when you get healthy, then what? It's a really good question. And I have to say one that I probably haven't explored a lot myself. And I think that it's partially because I got very, 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 very lucky in meeting my partner, Nicole, as quickly as I did. And because our relationship stemmed from a very instantaneous, very serendipitous friendship. But I will say that when I started going to therapy, I was so much more reserved and concerned about how I would be perceived by my therapist. And I wasn't going initially for all the reasons that I ultimately ended up needing to go. But I felt really grateful that I had been in therapy for two or three years at the time when it all really hit the fan. And between the things that were happening with my ex and then losing my mom, which was my greatest fear, and I talked about it in therapy. So witnessing my therapist's face when I told her that my mom died was like, yes, this is this is what's happening right now. I'm fully aware that my life has exploded. And I think for me, it was a matter of having been in this relationship with somebody who was just so disrespectful of my needs, my emotional stability after I had been so supportive. The whole reason I knew everything I knew about trauma and the healing from trauma was because of all of the research I did to mm-hmm. try to Was help she devoid her. of human emotion or what? Kind of. And that's the thing. I think that for me, what was crazy is I'm learning about all this stuff to try to help her heal. And so then when I did finally exit the situation, it was like, well, hey, at least I know what to do now. You know, like I felt prepared. Mm -hmm. I knew where to go. I knew what resources I needed. I had a therapist that I trusted, somebody who knew the backstory, because as these random events were happening that were traumatizing me repeatedly, before I even had enough time to come up for air, Denise, it was like on almost like 
uh, every couple of weeks, something insane would happen. And it was just like, I can't, whether it was a possible sexual assault in an alley, or she was missing the one night when I was supposed to be going to therapy, but then like randomly came back and acted like nothing happened, but she was abducted. And you're like, I, by aliens. I mean, it sounds like so diabolically just crazy that you don't even know what's the truth. What's well, that's exactly manufactured. So to your point, it was like, I had gotten to this place where I knew there was a limited amount of information that I could trust from this person. Mm -hmm. And I knew that the only thing that I could do was try to heal myself to be able to sustain and build. Like you needed to go to Al-Anon. I mean, honestly, it was because because the crazy thing, too, is that during all this, I was still working full time. Like I didn't have time off and it was like she wasn't working. I would joke around that the story of my life was writing itself. And it, it's <laughs> just it was so in retrospect, it feels like such a different life. And because it is yeah. but like to your point, walking away from it and going, this isn't my life. That's not what I'm trying to live here. And then turning around and being like, this is where I'm at now. And being able to see how the work that I've done has translated into such a healthier life. I will say, I think I sidestepped getting into something toxic because I had joined an app literally just to see, because I was like, it's been 12 years. I don't know what's happening out there. I need to know. I need to figure out what's going on. And I was like, ooh, this is terrible. I hate it. And then I was chatting with a couple of people and there was one person that I could just tell. It was like the depth of the conversation wasn't there, but I thought she was attractive. And I was like, well, like I want to prove to myself that like I could get her if I wanted to. But at the same time, I'm saying to my friends, like, I know that this is a bad idea. I know it would be a bad idea if we met up. Like I can just feel it. I know it's toxic. I already know this. And then thankfully, Nicole and I became friends and then it just rapidly evolved. So then I Thank didn't God. Have to think about the mistakes I would have made. So I feel like I lucked out a little bit. Your picker was still broken. <laughs> it was totally still broken. But she was like, no, 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 this way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. Uh, gosh, I dodged like, a bullet. I, I tell her, thank you for letting me leapfrog the dating scene. It seems terrible out there. <laughs> so Denise, um, one of the things that, you know, I'm really curious um, to know, because it's so easy to talk to you. Have you always felt inclined to speak this openly about your experiences or were the experiences that you had really the catalyst to share your story more broadly? I think that when I went on Oprah, it, that was 90, that was in 1999. That was, you know, a hot minute ago. I realized it was very gratifying. I was able to detach from worrying about what my small town, you know, 8,000 people in my hometown were going to think about me getting on here and talking about hormones and not wanting sex because I had no testosterone. It wasn't because I was postpartum depressive. It wasn't because I was crazy. I just needed someone to take my blood, which I couldn't get anyone to do. Um, I learned that there's such a beauty in sharing things and that people, they want to hear your, everyone has a story. We all have a story. And I learned that you don't just have to share it, but I, I learned how to show it and express it so that people can feel the depths of pain and also, you know, the joy. So I think for me, it wasn't always easy, but from that moment, I realized that the power of me writing and teaching and speaking and coaching 
it just continued to get better and bigger and bigger. The more confident I got in sharing and the more vulnerable and the more layers I peeled back, the larger my opportunities became. And it just has just snowballed. That's the only way I can really explain it. And, (laughs) and I know I'm enough now. I am enough. You know, the soundtrack in my mind 23 years ago was, I don't have what it takes. You know, I can never make it. I'm not valuable. No one else would ever love me. That's what I was taught. No one else would ever love you. And you're not enough. And today, all those things are so opposite. And not only do I say the things to myself every day, but I believe it. Yeah. With every fiber of my being and every day when I put my foot on the floor for the first moment of the morning, I remember I don't have that elephant on my back. I'm not in that dark place. I am loved. I have someone that I'm with that supports every dream, every idea that I have. And there's so much beauty in that. When you have people around you, like your tribe is so valuable. I did an autopsy on everyone that was in my life. And I honestly had to cut probably 75% of the people that I was spending time with and that I was allowing to pour into my life. And it wasn't in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And now we focused on who is in our life that lives life beautifully personally, like their relationships and professionally and focusing on people that have gone before us. And they don't have to be in our industry. People that just are wiser than us, we allow them to hold us accountable. And you know they are the first people that hold their pom-poms up and cheer for us for the smallest victories, but they also get down on their knees in the dirt with us when we're in the trenches. They're there with us to help pull us up and to say, don't quit. You've got to have mentorship and coaches and people around you. It's so important. Definitely. Not just people you're in relationship directly. You've got to have those other people um, that you give permission to help you um, because I didn't have that before. And I felt so alone. Definitely. So alone. Well, and I think the point that you make too about um, how community is so integral to our healing Mm -hmm. is so relevant because I think I had mentioned um, when we had initially spoken about the book that Oprah actually had done with Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You and the premise being that we should stop asking what's wrong with you, but ask Mm -hmm. what happened to you because there's a reason for why we are the way that we are. Oh, that's so true. And the thing that came out of that book, yes, it's a spoiler, but I think, you know, there's far more to the book than really the end result of it. But the most powerful thing that can heal us as human beings is connection with other people. And so, as you were saying, like you get out of bed every day and you stand up and you realize that there's all this beauty around you. And it's important to acknowledge that gratitude plays such an important role in our lives, especially when you're coming out of some sort of darkness, because it gives you a new perspective on how meaningful it is when you have something that feels as you said, just like a beautiful life, beautiful people in your life, the type of community that not only supports you, but challenges you in a good way and gives you a sense of accountability, as you pointed out. I believe that that is part of what is really difficult for us as individuals. When we do something wrong or we do something that we perceive to be wrong or somebody perceives to be wrong, 
we start to feel some sort of guilt and shame. And then we, we don't want to be accountable to it because at least this is my experience. Historically, it was always like, I wanted to find a scapegoat. I wanted there to be somewhere yeah. else that I could go with that. But at the end of the day, yeah. as you said, as much as I can point to the crazy shit that happened in my last relationship, I can acknowledge that I played a role in that. And, and we allow people to treat us and, and we get into these cycles and these patterns. I was a participant in that too. I never put all the blame on other people in relationships. Yes, there were some insane things that, that I had no control over, but I do like to be accountable in my path of everything I did so that I can move forward and I can grow and evolve from that. And totally. that is ownership. And so, and part of that's being young too, right? I, agree, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I think the most amazing things that have ever happened to me have happened on the other side of sheer terror. And that's always been stepping out, taking the leap, but man, if you, if you do it, the rewards, it's the fruit comes, you've got to step out. You've got to be brave. I had this newfound confidence because I wasn't used to having people around me that were breathing life into me. Definitely, I was used to just having all these naysayers everywhere. And it's just like, how do you even function in that? Yeah. Like you, I, I have a supportive family. I'm very fortunate that I have a variety of friends in many places. And at the same point in time, it wasn't that I didn't have support, but I think that I didn't even know what support I needed and not even speaking to the relationship stuff because much like you, I was swallowing that and I was just like trying to live my life so I could figure out what was going to happen. But once I was out of that situation, I saw how everybody really showed up. They were like, we didn't know you know, and we didn't know what we could do, or I should have said more, or should have done more. And I'm like, you need to understand, I don't blame you for any of that. Right. Because A, I wasn't transparent about it. And B, even if you had said something, I know as well as you do, that I wasn't going to do it unless I was ready or wanted to. So at the end of the day, really giving ourselves a for a long time, I was like, stop fucking saying this to me. But it's like giving yourself <laughs> grace and being able to really sit with, you know, the growth that you've accomplished and be able to look at the people around you and feel safe, feel yes. psychologically and emotionally and physically safe in your community of people is such a blessing and such a sense of just that release, that lightness that mm -hmm. comes with the joy and the gratitude and the fulfillment of creating these deep, meaningful connections with people who you can support unconditionally and who support you unconditionally really translates into such a tremendous amount of transformation. Well, and it's not just that they show up, it's how they show up. Definitely. For me, as we've grown and become more successful, it, it can get lonely. Um, you know, I, I choose to work at home. I don't work at my market center or my brokerage mm -hmm. because I, I am very selective. My circle is tight on who I trust and who I spend my time with. I channel my energy. I'm very, very careful about my environments now more than I used to be. And so I work at home and I'm extremely productive and I can be social. I get so much social interaction with my clients. Yeah. 
that I don't need to go hang out and deal with caddy office politics. It's not where I might want my energy to be devoted to at all. So I've been able to make those decisions in my life and it's been really healthy for me. So I think that owning that you have control of your environment as much as you can. I know if you go to a job, you can't really control, you know, who's in the cubicle next to you or whatever, but we do teach people how to treat us and we can control all that we can. It's an art, but I've become very good at keeping my circle tight with people that I know I can trust implicitly. Definitely. It's not the quantity, it's the quality. Definitely. Definitely. And you know, I I think that's something too, when I consider I've been in corporate jobs for most of my life. You work at home now? I do. I have been for several years actually before COVID. So that was sort of convenient. I had the ability to go into an office a little bit at points in times, which was nice because I do think sometimes the in-person socialization is, I mean, honestly, that's why I would go. And team camaraderie, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. So the last large corporate job I was at was Amazon. When I left the relationship that I've been talking about, I also very shortly thereafter left my job at Amazon. But it was one of those moments where because I was leaving this abusive relationship and also leaving a company where I felt like I didn't have autonomy, I felt trapped, right? A slave to the fear Mm -hmm. of what happens if I leave? Like what's going to happen? Where's my stability? That challenge of acknowledging that if I want the life that I want, then I have to go out and get it. And it comes back around to the decision that you and Troy made. It's like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Let's go, you know, and And do it now. Exactly. Before you talk yourself out of it. (laughs) And that's exactly it. I've spent too long building a life around everybody else's expectations. And this is the time for me to really care about what I want and prioritize what I want. Because much like you said at the beginning of this conversation, I know that my purpose is to connect with people. And I know that there is some way for me to create a life out of conversations like this, because I very much like you believe that everybody has a story and they're all worth hearing. We just need to give people the space and time for it. And so when, you know, you give yourself the permission, as you said earlier, to live the life that you want, then Mm -hmm you stop questioning all of those insecurities that you had earlier and you just run with it. You kind of like you, you've got the baton and you're just going to run the rest of that race with it, no matter what it's run for us, run. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) At the end of the day, it really just comes back to being able to feel secure in that sense of self Mm -hmm. and being able to make sure that you are in an environment that is supportive of who you truly are and what you want out of life and being uncompromising with your own happiness. And I think that sounds like something that we we both maybe learned the hard way, but have definitely come out on the other side. Yeah. I mean, I've learned to say no, that used to not be something in my vocabulary because I had, you know, the disease to please like a lot of us do, but I'm not afraid to say no, because in saying no, I can say yes to things that are really important to me and that I can do that are more impactful um, than saying yes to everybody. And I can't be everything and everybody for everyone. And that was something that I had to come to terms with because 
for a lot of the people in my life, I was the person they called for advice, the person they called when they were in a fire, you know, the person they, you know, they, that was their encourager. And we can't be everything to everyone and then have enough energy at the end of the day for our spouse, our partner, our relationships, you know? And so I learned, I am very mindful of my energy during the day. I can't be on E for Troy when we're not, I, I can't do it. And for yourself, right? I think that's the other part of it is, I mean, you and I both learned in early relationships. Oh, for sure. I mean, the whole, you can't pour from an empty cup couldn't have been more true. And it was like, I was parched (laughs) for a decade. Now I feel so rejuvenated in being able to not only fulfill the needs and hopes that I have, but to be able to help somebody else achieve their dreams. Yeah, it's so rewarding. I mean, it it really is. It is. It really changes the way that I look at the world. Is there anything that you would want to tell your younger self now, knowing all that you do from the experiences that you've had? Probably not to allow other people to steal your dream because they don't have one of their own. Because from a very young age, I was very independent and knew that I was meant for something great. And it was, it was going to be surrounded by serving people. You know, my grandfather had told me from a very young age, I don't know what you're going to do with your life, Denise, but you're going to be a difference maker. You're going to be a game changer. You're going to be a disruptor. You're going to be a barrier breaker. So even at the time, I didn't really maybe even believe that, but you know, he's gone now. And those words are still imprinted in my soul. He saw something in me that has come to fruition. And I know he's looking down on me and just saying, well done, Denise. Well done. Yeah. I mean, hey, um, I share that sentiment. Well done, Denise. It's okay to feel like you've come to a place where you can say positive things about yourself. Totally. I, I hadn't been in that place. You know, you have to disrupt your soil. Sometimes you really do and just Mm -hmm. understand your worth and your value. And I'm at a place where I do, and I couldn't always say that. I mean, that's why I became a family law mediator and a divorce real estate expert, because I went through some trauma with my divorce. And now I get to help people, my clients walk through it more unscathed. Because I think divorce is going through surgery without anesthesia. That's always the way I describe it. It's terrible. Oh, I'm 100% using that analogy. Thank you. Oh, um. it's so terrible. But, you know, it's it's how we use things that we went through that created this path of deep empathy for me to help other people. And okay. I'm using that in my professional life. But, you know, I'm still, you know, people that I've helped walk through their divorces, I'm still checking on them. That says a lot about you as an individual because that's leading from that place of empathy and that place of understanding and the desire to, as you said, serve people and create value in a way that is so far beyond the tangible. And the thing that really stands out to me, a a number of things stand out to me, but one (laughs) of the things that stands out to me about the way that you speak about your experiences is that awareness of how important it is to 
learn to trust yourself, to feel confident in yourself and mm -hmm. to really be proud of who you are and acknowledge that you do love yourself. And I remember being in therapy probably like a year and a half ago or so, realizing that I couldn't even say I liked myself. And so I was like, weird. I would have never thought like, oh, I have this just subtle self-loathing that I've experienced my whole life, but yeah. turns out it's there. And so then when I got to the place, I was like, okay, like I can say I like myself, but it feels weird. And now it's like, well, yeah, I love myself because I feel like I've done a lot of work to be able to look at myself in the mirror with a sense of integrity and feeling pride and gratitude about how far I've come and making the decisions that I've made to do the work to expand my mind and be able to not only help myself heal, but as you said, to bring that to the world in a way mm -hmm. that can help other people, whether it is just that little light at the end of the tunnel where somebody hears this conversation that we had and goes, oh, I, I can change that. It can be better for me. And, and I hope that that happens for one person, let alone many people would be amazing. But at the end of the day, just being able to share this conversation with you and, and hear more of your story and feel so connected to that sense of empowerment that you just really embody is really quite incredible. And I'm so grateful that we've had a chance to not only connect with the podcast, but just on such a deep human level. It's one of those um, really rare experiences when you can kind of level with somebody that you've never met and, and feel just such a tremendous sense of awareness and um, sort of like symbiosis with somebody. I really feel quite lucky that we happened upon each other to be able to record this episode. I agree. And I think that, you know, with you experiencing a deep loss too, you understand that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's a country song, live like you're dying. I truly feel like it's my goal every day to do that. And one of the things that I think I carry on the legacy of my mom is that I was always told your mom had a way of making people feel welcome and warm and special and immensely loved and valued. And that is something that I feel like I carry on through words of affirmation or handwritten cards or rolling red carpet out for my friends coming to stay the night for girls weekend or for my clients. You know, it's how do we make people feel if we think it, say it, you may not have tomorrow to Absolutely. forgive someone or ask forgiveness or just say a kind word. So that's my encouragement is, you know, we all have a story. We all do. No matter how old you are, no matter, you know, what phase of life you're in, we all have a story. And when we share it, we can, we can change lives. Absolutely. And I will say with much, much confidence that our meeting has changed mine. And I get the sense that not only do you and I have a few things in common, but I imagine our moms may have as well. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I love that. Well, Denise, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and for sharing your story. If you enjoyed our conversation today, gang, and want to hear more about Denise's journey, her book Out of the Box is available on Amazon. I'll leave that link in the show notes. I'll also drop links to Denise's television appearances so you can see her in action on House Hunters. <laughs> and of course, if you're in Oklahoma, definitely make sure to visit Denise and Troy's real estate offerings at the show, the Schroeder Group. And that is deniseandtroy.com. And you can also follow Denise on Instagram at Denise Sells Oklahoma. And on TikTok, you can follow at Troy and Denise.
Follow us for all our shenanigans. Yes, exactly. Who knows what will happen next? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for season two of the Wanna Bet podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that season two starts August 18th. But I like Airplane. I know you do, but Wanna Bet is a sports betting podcast. Each week we bet $1,000 on the NFL teams and games that we love. Well, that sounds like fun. It is fun. And last year you picked over 60% of your games correctly. How'd you do? We're not talking about that. We are telling people that they can find us every Friday. So no more movie quotes. Roger, Roger. Electric acid. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid.